Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to study your word. It is absolute truth. Lord, we should live our lives based on what you teach us in Scripture. So I pray this morning, Lord, we would learn and understand and be challenged and be convicted by your truth. Give us the spiritual eyes to see, Father, the wisdom to discern and understand, Lord, the courage to obey. And Father, I just thank you for what you're going to show us and what you're going to do, Lord. I pray that as we study and understand, we could be transformed, Father, more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today is a very exciting day for our church. As I talked about just a few minutes ago at the end of this service, we will be commissioning Megan and Joe Fry as full-time missionaries to Guatemala in just over 24 hours from now. Megan and Joe will board a plane with their two small boys fly to Guatemala and spend at least the next two years ministering and teaching and sharing with pastors, living among those people. And some people would ask the question, why in the world would they do something like that? What would, what would prompt the person or a young family like this to literally sell all their possessions and move away as missionaries to a foreign country? Well, there's one very simple reason they're doing it. They're doing it because the Lord called them to do it. That calling was very clear in their hearts. They've been kind of thinking through and praying through that now for a couple of years. The Lord has reaffirmed that calling over and over in their minds. But for a lot of people, this decision that we're going to celebrate here in just a little while is pretty radical. It's pretty strange. Some people would say it's even crazy. But what if I were to say to you that it's not crazy, it's not strange, it's not even radical. It's simply a family trusting the Lord, seeking His will for their lives, and then responding in obedience. See, I would argue that radical and complete obedience is something that far too few Christians ever experience. See, if we're not careful in our walk, we find ourselves in a rut, don't we? Where we just kind of walk the same path. We do the same sorts of things. We find ourselves not looking any different in our faith than we did a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe I'm talking to you. Maybe you've kind of lost the joy of your salvation Maybe you don't feel uh, fulfilled in your faith anymore. Maybe your walk is growing cold. Maybe you find it harder and harder to pray and to spend time with the Lord. And so I want to ask you this question this morning as we're confronted by the faithfulness of this couple that we're going to talk about here in a little while. And we're confronted by the faithfulness of others that have gone before us. And we're confronted by the faithfulness of the scriptures. I'm going to ask you this very simple question. What have you ever done that's radical for the Lord? What have you ever done 
that's radically obedient to Christ. And so to help us kind of think through that and walk through that challenge this morning, I'm going to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, where the Lord is going to lay out for us Maybe the most challenging thing he tells his followers, it's a call to follow him and a call very simply to radical obedience in Christ. Now, if you were to read through the Gospel of Matthew, and and I would encourage you to do that if you've never done that, but if you were to read through the Gospel of Matthew up until this point in our study, you would see that the Lord has done some pretty radical things. Jesus has been healing people, he's been walking on water, he's fed thousands of people, and he's gained a good bit of notoriety. In fact, because of all the amazing things he's been doing, thousands of people have now started to follow Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples kind of wake up every morning and there are thousands of people massing to watch him, to listen to him, to see what incredible things he's going to do this day. But in Matthew chapter 16, something very interesting happens. It's kind of this turning point in the life of Christ. It's a turning point in his ministry. And he's going to challenge his people in this very moment to do something pretty radical. So notice with me Matthew chapter 16 beginning in verse 21. We have it on the screens. You can follow along in the scripture as well. From that time on, right? So from now on, things are going to be different. Before this moment, things were one way. After this moment, things are going to be different. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus begins to explain, listen, everybody that's been following me because you wanted some food or some miracles or some healing, from this point forward, everything is going to change. I'm about to be arrested and crucified, and in three days I'll raise from the dead. Now, just to kind of put it in terms of what this sermon looks like this morning, Jesus at this moment is exhibiting radical obedience to the Father. You understand that? God the Father didn't just say, Jesus, I want you to go share your faith with somebody, or I want you to go witness to that guy over there that's never heard the gospel, or I want you to go fast for a few days. All those things may be radical for us, but for Christ in this moment, the Lord says, you're going to walk to Jerusalem and give up your life. So Jesus begins his journey to the cross. Now look at the response of Peter. Look at verse 22. So Peter, as we all know and love, sometimes speaks before he thinks, like so many of us do, right? I I find comfort oftentimes in Peter's responses. It feels sometimes like the things I would say. He speaks before he thinks. Peter took him aside and just, interestingly enough, rebuked him. Could you imagine rebuking Christ? Could you imagine? No, Jesus, now listen. (laughs) I know you think this is what you want to do, Jesus, but here's what's really going to happen. Listen, never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus responds in verse 23. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 24, here's the call. This should pierce us. This should keep you awake at night. If anyone would come after me, that's us, by the way, if you call yourself a believer, Christian, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now as we seek to trust the Lord, as we seek to live in obedience to him, there's some truths from this text I want you to see. There are things you should begin to apply to your life if you really, truly want to live in obedience to Christ. Here's truth number one. If we want to live in obedience, we must be prepared for the enemy's attacks. Now, let me just say that again. If we want to live in obedience, we need to be prepared for the enemy's attacks. When you choose to radically obey Christ, the enemy will attack you. Did you know that? When you choose to radically follow Christ, you need to be prepared for the devil to attack you, to attack your life, to attack your family. I want you to look at what happens in verse 21. There's this interesting conversation between Peter and Jesus, a discussion, right? Jesus explains what's going to happen. I'm about to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on the cross in verse 22. Pull that up. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Lord, that's not going to happen. This is never going to happen. Now, I want you to watch. This is fascinating to me because Jesus immediately now in verse 23 recognizes what's happening here. He recognizes that when, when Peter rebukes him, it's not really Peter rebuking Jesus. It's the attack of the enemy trying to stop Jesus from being faithful to the call of the Lord. Do you understand that? So look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He calls Peter Satan, right? Get behind me, Satan. You're not concerned with the things of God. You're concerned with the things of the world, basically. Jesus recognizes and understands that this is an attack on his faithfulness and his obedience. See, we see all through Scripture that when the Lord calls us to obedience, the enemy attacks. Now, here's what some of you are already thinking. I just kind of believe that some of you have already had this thought. You think something like this. You know, I could, I could never be radically obedient to Christ. That's just not me. And you kind of have all these excuses for why you can't. You know, maybe I haven't studied enough or I don't know enough scripture. I hear that from people all the time. I don't know enough of the Bible to answer the questions people are going to ask me. Or I'm not faithful enough or maybe I've got this thing in my past or, or maybe I've got fear that I'm dealing with. And we kind of all fall into some of these categories. And you may say, you know what, I'm just not faithful enough or I just am not good enough or I can't be used to do something radical. I just can't be radically obedient to the Lord. He would never call me to do anything. Well, I, I need to kind of warn you of some truth here. Let me, let me confront that lie with biblical truth. The Lord has, from the beginning, called people that were unequipped, that were unassuming, that had never really done anything for him. He has made kind of a history of calling those people to radical obedience and then equipping them to do incredible things. I mean, nobody in Scripture was important until the Lord called them. You ever thought about that? Nobody in Scripture ever did anything until the Lord said to them, listen, I'm calling you to be radically obedient to me. One of the first examples we see in Scripture is Abraham. We studied through the book of Genesis last year and we talked a lot about Abraham and his life, but Abraham was kind of this wandering nomad. He was nobody. 
He'd never really done anything great except he was faithful and he trusted the Lord. And so the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of pull you out of obscurity, out of the desert, out of this nomadic, wandering life that nobody knows anything about. Nobody's ever heard of you. I'm going to pull you out of that. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Amazing. Amazing. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to take this guy who's living in obscurity and elevate him to this pillar that we read about and study in Scripture. Now, we studied through the book of Genesis. So you'll remember that promise started with Abraham. Went down through his family all through the book of Genesis. The promise was always a great nation. The promise was a land flowing with milk and honey. Abraham dies and we move on into Exodus. And God says, I'm going to continue this promise. And now I'm going to pull a man named Moses, a nobody, a murderer, a guy who's wandered in the desert for 40 years. He's a sheep herder. Nobody's heard anything from this guy in decades. He hasn't done anything important. Nobody cares anything about him. I'm going to pull him from obscurity. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. The Lord speaking to Moses says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk And honey, God said, Moses, you're going to do this. You're a nobody. You've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. I'm going to pull you out of obscurity and use you to do great things. On and on that story continues through history. The promise of the Lord, the Lord calling people that seem to be useless, the Lord calling people that have never done anything before into great things, into his will, using them to accomplish the purposes of his kingdom. And here's the thing we notice time after time again. Is that when the Lord calls somebody out of obscurity, which would be all of us, by the way, kind of a nobody into prominence to serve him and to trust him, when he does that, the enemy is going to attack. You think about the promise of the Lord to the people of Israel. This is probably the greatest promise of all Scripture. There's no greater promise than what the Lord promised to do with the people of Israel because we see it so often and all through the Old Testament. It lasts for generations, for lots of different people, lots of different leaders, and the Lord was faithful. Eventually, he brought the people into the land flowing with milk and honey. But in the midst of maybe the greatest promise of history, opposition from the enemy still arises. Isn't that interesting? As clear as that calling was, As clear as the will of the Lord was in the hearts of the people of Israel, the enemy arose, the people rebelled against Moses, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because they failed to trust. The enemy attacked, cast doubt upon the promise of the Lord, and the people suffered. John 8, 44, speaking of the devil. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, when God calls you to do great things, the enemy's going to lie to you, and his number one tactic is to instill within your heart a fear of trusting the Lord. Did you know that? 
I want to tell you a story because I want you to kind of hear my heart on this. Believe it or not, I have these moments as well. I have moments when I'm fearful and I have moments when I doubt and I have moments when I struggle and I kind of have these conversations with the Lord. I had one of these opportunities, one of these moments while I was in Africa. I want to tell you something that I need you to, to hear and understand and I wanted to wait till I got home to tell you so you could hear from me and not on Facebook and, and, and not kind of be fearful in the way you heard it. I wanted you to hear it from me and hear truth. But while we were in Africa, my two youngest children, Jonas and Lydia, got malaria. Now, when you hear malaria in America, it's very scary. We don't know anything about it. It's concerning to us. We kind of gasp. What does this mean? So let me, let me give you some truth, okay? Truth number one, they're fine. Lydia, Jonas, y'all still alive? Everybody okay? Doing well? Laughing? Jonas came back after being diagnosed. I kid you not. He got off. The, we had to go into it. You can't just, long story, we had to go to another town to find out. And I will tell you what happened here in just a second. He got off the bus, ran back into the ark, which is the room which many of you have been in the ark. And he said, I got malaria. That's what he told everybody. I was like, okay. I told him, we need to do shirts. I went to Africa and all I got was malaria. That was the t-shirt we're going to make. They're well, they're healthy. In Africa, malaria is a very common thing. Just, just to alleviate your fears, you can't get it from any of us. Uh, you have to get bit by a mosquito that has malaria. Fortunately, mosquitoes in America don't have malaria, so we don't worry about it here. So I sat in the doctor's office. He was an Indian doctor who'd been trained in England. He had been to American practice. He has children that are doctors in San Francisco. I had a lot of confidence. This guy knew what he was doing. He'd been practicing in Zambia for 40 years. He called me into his office and he said, well, they're both positive, just kind of nonchalant, you know, and, you know that daddy moment of what does this mean? Because I didn't know anything about malaria. I said, walk me through this, okay? I need you to tell me what's really going on. He said, listen, it's scary to you, but I treat eight to 10 patients a day. If you diagnose it properly and treat it properly and give the right medication, there are no issues. It's fine. He'll kill it. It could possibly resurface, but if it does, it's no big deal. You give them the medicine again. No problem, right? So we get the medicine. You know, they give it to you there at the doctor's office. You don't have to go to the pharmacy and take it. For three days, that's all it takes. And after a day and a half, they were fine, by the way. No big deal. Hadn't been six since. But I got back to New Day Orphanage, and we got off the bus. We drove, you know, it's an hour drive back, and they're in the ark, and everything's good. They're on their medicine, and we kind of have a diagnosis. And I just had one of these moments as a dad. And I walked out. Uh, if you've been out of the ark, I walked out of the ark and took a left down that dirt road, walking down towards the orphanage, and just me and the Lord. And afternoon is kind of cloudy because it's the rainy season. And I had one of these moments with the Lord. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this, Lord? We sacrificed a lot to be here. We, we saved money. We did everything we could. We had to work out things at home and at work and all the kind of go through the list of what we gave up, you know, to be here. We've kind of all done that. And I, I kind of, for a moment, I had one of these moments. Should we go home? Should we just pack up right now and catch the next flight home and Go to a doctor here and get good medical treatment. And as, as if the Lord just kind of reminded me in that moment very clearly, Adam, I've got a plan for you and your family. Don't worry. Trust me. And I was reminded of 2 Corinthians. And in that moment, maybe unlike any other moment of my life, the Lord's strength was made perfect in my weakness. And he said, I've got a plan for you. And I've got a plan for your family. 
And after I thought about it for a while and prayed about it, I told James Skipworth, the Skipworths were there with us, of course, I said, you know, you don't ever want to wish anything like this on your family. But if any family in our church going on mission had to get it first, I sure am glad it's me. Because I can stand up here to you and say, you know what, the Lord's got a plan. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be fearful. Even in the difficult times, we're going to trust him. That's what Christ is. So let's continue our story this morning, verse 27. So Jesus recognizes the attacks. He recognizes the enemy. He recognizes what's going on. And instead of backing down in fear, he doubles down. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Right? He pulls them all in. Right? It's not just about me anymore, Jesus says. It's about all the people around us. If anyone, he said in verse 24, would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's truth number two. We need to be aware of the attacks of the enemy, but in the moments of those attacks, in the moments of our fear, in the moments when our faith is wavering, we need to remember truth number two. If we want to live in obedience, we must trust the Lord in all things. If you want to live in obedience... If you want to push through that fear that the enemy tries to lay on your heart, you've got to trust the Lord in all things. I want you to notice the progression of what Christ commands in verse 24. Pull that up if you would for me, please. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me and be my follower, and by the way, let me just be clear, that's us. It's very easy sometimes to kind of compartmentalize Scripture. It's very easy sometimes to to try to put God in this box and to think the Lord's speaking to somebody else and not to you. But the Lord basically says, if anyone would come after me, if Adam Camp would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right. So if you're going to follow Christ, there's this progression. First of all, you have to deny yourself. Then you take up your cross... Then you follow Christ. So we move from this place of, just think about it like this, in the the progression of the story of Christ. This place of low commitment where people just kind of walk around and follow Jesus because he's doing miraculous things. Low commitment where I think a lot of Christians still are today in our walk. We like to look at Jesus from afar. We hope that when we need something, he can give it to us. But as far as radical obedience, we're not interested. We're kind of on the periphery, right? Low commitment to this idea of Christ saying, listen, if you're really going to be my follower, you can't just hang out in the dark corners. You You can't just come to church and sit and listen and go home and never change. If you're really going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Total commitment. One writer explains it like this. He said to renounce the self. He said self uh, denying self is like this to, to, to renounce the self as the dominant element in life it's to replace the self with God in Christ as the object of affection it's to place the divine will before the self will so Christ says listen if you're going to be my follower you've got to take your will set it aside and instead follow me and seek my will but he uses this analogy that's sometimes lost on us He says you need to deny yourself, but then you need to pick up your cross and follow me. Now for us, the cross is is a symbol of Christ. We know that. 
It hangs in our churches. We wear it around our neck. We have it in our houses. It's decor sometimes for us. And that's all well and good. It reminds us of who Jesus is. It reminds us that the cross, by the way, is empty. There's no Savior on the cross anymore. He's risen. He's no longer on the cross. It's a picture of what Christ did for us. But for somebody living in the first century that would have read the Gospel of Matthew, to these people, cross wouldn't have been a nice decor or something they wear around their neck. It would have symbolized excruciating death. That's what it meant. So an analogy that we may better understand, it'd be like us wearing an electric chair around our neck. Bizarre, right? Who would do that? It'd be like us hanging pictures of electric chairs all over our houses. Where it hangs from your rearview mirror, or you have a picture of it on a t-shirt, right? We would never do that. That's bizarre. But somebody living in the first century when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, it meant for that person giving up everything it meant taking the life that they used to live and their desires and their passions and their hopes and killing them once and for all put to death the old self pick up your cross and follow me and so we ask the question what what does that mean for us now What does it mean to pick up my cross and follow Christ? Well, the words we could use and the phrase we've used in this sermon is kind of the idea of radical obedience. What does radical obedience mean in your life right now? Not your neighbors, not Megan and Joe, not mine, not a deacon, not your Sunday school teacher. Your life right now. Now, for some of you, radical obedience may mean selling everything and moving to another country. Praise the Lord. For others of you, you may say, you know what, I'm not really called for that kind of work. I'm not called to go overseas and do mission. Praise the Lord. Then the question is, how are you being radically obedient here? It's not enough to say I'm not called to do that without saying I am called to do this. Radical obedience for some of you may be something as simple as discipling somebody that's never been discipled. Maybe that's radical obedience to you. For others, radical obedience may be something like witnessing to your neighbor. Maybe you've never witnessed to your neighbor before. For others, radical obedience may be sharing your testimony with somebody for the first time ever. You say, you know what, if I were honest, Adam, I have never shared my testimony or it's been years since I have. Maybe for you, a step of radical obedience is sharing your testimony. Maybe for somebody else, radical obedience is beginning to tithe. Maybe radical obedience is giving something up for Christ. It it, it doesn't really matter what it is because that's between you and the Lord. The point is, you should be willing to deny whatever you want to do instead to pick up the cross of Christ, put to death your personal desires, and serve him in radical obedience. That's the call of being a believer. For some reason, we've kind of over the centuries and maybe in our culture made Christianity something that just is really easy and feels good and gives us good things in life. And sometimes that's the case. There is absolute joy in serving the Lord. But I think we've kind of forgotten this idea of radical obedience. We've forgotten this idea that Christ requires everything of us. And instead we just kind of float along very passively in our faith. Some of you are probably thinking, you know, I just don't know if I could give all this up. Radical obedience. What would that cost me? 
friends or my job or money or certain social status. I mean, if I was really going to be obedient to Christ in all things, radically obedient, what would that really cost me? Well, I think Christ anticipates that question and he answers it for us in verse 26. Pull that up if you would, Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, verse 26. Jesus answers the question before we ask it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We've seen that we need to be prepared for the enemy to attack. We've seen that when we're obedient, we have to give up everything for Christ. And then truth number three, if we want to live in obedience, we must recognize the foolishness of seeking the things of this world over the things of Christ. From a biblical perspective, from an eternal perspective, it is foolish to seek the things of this world over the things of Christ. Absolute foolishness. 2016 has been kind of an interesting year. For a lot of reasons, but one of the things that made it interesting is a lot of celebrities died. I don't know if you know this or not. I was reading an article earlier this week about all the different celebrities that have died this last year, 2016. It's a long list. People like, I wrote down a few of them, Arnold Palmer, Nancy Reagan, David Bowie, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Carrie Fisher, John Glenn, Glenn Fry, on and on the list. There's a long list of very famous people that died in 2016. And I thought, all these people and the lives they led, the millions, probably the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people they influenced. I mean, you, you put all these people together and their influence, I mean, Muhammad Ali around the world, Prince, Arnold Palmer, all the hundreds of millions of people that all of these folks impacted in their lives. But I, I thought about this, and I think this is important in our context. Of all the things that these people accomplished, none of it matters to them anymore. None of it. Not one penny. When Muhammad Ali crossed into eternity, the only thing that mattered was whether or not he had a relationship with Christ. In all of his heavyweight titles, all of the accolades these people have received, all of the awards that they've garnered, all the money that they've made didn't amount to anything in eternity. Christ says, what, is it, what does it gain if you get the whole world and yet lose your soul? You know, most of us are never going to have the opportunity to gain the whole world. <laughs> But some of us waste our life trying, don't we? I love David Livingston because he was a missionary in Africa and he just always challenges my faith in the things he said and he lived in Africa for most of his life. He sacrificed so greatly for the kingdom. But I want you to listen to a quote that he wrote before his death. He said, for my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God 
which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and the healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us, I have never made a sacrifice. What's God calling you to do? What radical thing is God asking you to accomplish in your life? Are you going to chase after the things of the world? Or are you willing, for the sake of the kingdom, to give it all up? to take up your cross and to follow Christ? That's the question you have to answer. Let's pray. Father, you call us over and over again to radical obedience. Lord, for some of those among us, that means selling everything they own and moving to a foreign country. For others of us, that means sharing our faith for the first time in many, many years. For others, it may mean discipleship or giving or some act of service, Father. That's between us and you, but we just pray right now, Father, that wherever we are in our walk, we would give ourselves over to trusting you, to denying ourselves, to taking up our cross and to following you in radical obedience. Father, give us the spiritual eyes to see and the courage to know and do everything you've called us to do. And Father, we're going to praise your name now and for all eternity because of your faithfulness and your goodness. We love you and serve you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to open up the altar. Of course, it's always available for you to pray. I'm here if you'd like to speak to me. But this is your opportunity to respond to the radical calling the Lord has placed in your life. You come this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.